So we're on page 277, and we're continuing the conversation about he's going through the idea that on both sides, there are issues, right? Both sides have problems. Both sides have advantages, and both sides have disadvantages. I am convinced that not one of us now living appreciates Judaism and its purity and truth. Take into account the differences of opinion, which are quite natural. Since every rabbi is obliged to find his own individual way, and no school guides him. Consider furthermore that we are passing through a period of birth throes, right? What we said before is what we call the Iqbasad de Mashiach, right? The birth pangs of the Messiah. And if some authority were to try to establish a definitive order at this stage, it would merely perpetuate the labor pains. In other words, as they go through, as we go through the different stages of life, and as we are, as a Jewish people, we are getting closer and closer to the time period of Mashiach. So to a certain extent, if you make the wrong decisions, you might be prolonging the agony of the birth pain, right? So is it really worth it to start trying to develop a, an approach that would be a uniform approach without having the advantage of a direct connection to Hashem, without having the advantage of a, of a you know, ironclad approach that is rooted in halacha, would that really actually work or would that actually prolong the agony? For how might leaders be chosen now? If one-sided, they would perpetuate extreme approaches. If representing a mixture of trends, they would stand for compromises which would obstruct the tide of development that can bring the pure water of life only if it is allowed to run its full course. As matters stand now, however, whatever time has wrought, it will undo again leaving space for the towering edifice that is waiting to be established. Right? That's, um, honestly, I'm not really sure how, it's, it's a pretty poetic, obviously, and he, he's using some metaphors here that are mixing together. And, and it's just a little bit difficult to understand why it's so clear. I'm, honestly, I'm not really sure where he's going with that, honestly. I, might, I, don't, I don't see typically the logic. I wanted to ask you if I'm stupid because I didn't get it. So. No, we were going to ask Dave. Dave was going to be our litmus test. If, it, if, if it, how smart you have to be to understand. Um, but no. But honestly speaking, I, I personally don't don't really understand. Typically, when he, when he says things with such a level of certainty, it, it's relatively logical, and, and it's pretty easy and simple to see the logic. I, I I can't say I see the logic here personally. If in the period after Maimonides, the serious concern for preserving the practical observance of Judaism had not made it necessary to curb conflicting philosophical tendencies. Perhaps the exploration of all possible approaches might have led the Jewish mind to sober insight. And we might at this time have found ourselves at the point at which we can now only expect to arrive only within centuries. In other words, he is indeed saying there was a serious place for what Maimonides was, was doing, right? As we've said in the past, he's not criticizing Maimonides per se. He's criticizing Maimonides only for the Pandora's box that and the chaos, pandemonium that ensued. If, however, everyone who was trying to pursue the Maimonidean approach was doing so from a very grounded and a complete and total understanding of the Torah, both the written and the oral, before they get involved and they had the proper perspective, well, then it would have been a lot easier and it would have actually been possible for philosophy to have offered a lot to the world. And we would have reached a point which now we can only expect to arrive to within centuries. Hence, I can only rejoice that now the scales are hanging free, held by God alone, and that only intellectual efforts struggle for balance, unimpeded in their swinging by forcible 
interference, okay? So he's saying, indeed, he actually sort of likes what's going on in his time period, right? The struggle for supremacy in terms of what the Jewish mind, what the thinking Jewish mind should think is the proper approach to the world, to Judaism, and to the religion, right? That struggle, he actually enjoys because you know what? It sets a stark contrast, right? So I hate to go back to my to my punching bag again, but you know, so th this whole experience with, with the Berkeley Hillel, when I'm meeting students who I've never met before, right? And they're not Orthodox, they're very far from Orthodox. And they say, oh, are we gonna be meeting in the Hillel? And I'm like, well, not really actually. And I tell them the whole, you know, the, the five minute five minute rundown and they're kind of appalled, right? They're just appalled. They, they see the contradiction very, very easily, right? So sometimes the contrasting opinions can really help bring things into, into more clear detail, okay? So the idea right now, these intellectual efforts are struggling for balance, right? But let's see what the result will be. By all means, I'm sorry, were they arrested again, our great-grandchildren would be no better off than we are. Should we not, for their sake, be unafraid to go through these times of anxiety? By all means, let the scales swing. The more freely they hang and the more reliably they will assess truth and life in the end, the more violently they must swing at this time. So all options have to be on the table for us to really achieve an, an end goal of getting to the truest, most correct interpretation, most correct value system that the Torah is really trying to impart to us. But once the scales have come to rest, the spirit of Yisrael will stand revealed in its full brilliance, comprehending itself, its teachings, and its destiny, pervading all of Yisrael's members and engendering the fullest life in this spirit. Then too, the offshoot that came forth from Yisrael will have completed its mission, and a battle of a different nature will have been concluded among our now Jewish brethren. A battle in which man's gaze, freely lifted up to the one alone, and his consciousness of moral strength, will have overcome whatever threatened to obscure his insight and to corrupt his moral vigor. Okay, so we're going to look at the footnotes about this because this is discussing the the offshoots which we've mentioned in the past in terms of in terms of Christianity and Islam, um, and also the idea of the battle between Gog and Magog. Okay, so we turn to page 329. The author is again referring to the role of Christianity in preparing the world for the truths of Torah. And he anticipates that the battle for men's souls will lead the nations to the recognition of God and of the moral conscience implanted in us. Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Hirsch appears to be paraphrasing Kant's famous remark that two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The oftener and more steadily we reflect on them the starry heavens above, and the moral law within, okay? So I'm not sure, oh, I guess, okay, I hear what you're saying. A battle in which man's gaze freely lifted up to the one alone, one, right, to Hashem, the heavens, and his consciousness of moral strength, right, are these two ideas that Kant is discussing, uh, the beauty of these two ideas. So what will happen is, and uh, will overcome whatever threatened to obscure his insight and to corrupt his moral vigor. Then at last, the book of history will impress its final teachings upon every human mind, okay? So the more we go through these struggles, the more we'll end up in the right place. Now, this is not something that is a guarantee, right? But this is something which we do have a guarantee because of the fact that we have Hashem who tells us that we will end up in the times of Mashiach. So, what he's understanding is that this struggle itself is going to bring us one step closer, right? 
every time the, the, the saying goes, right, every, every time you strike out brings you closer to your next home run, right? It doesn't have to be true in baseball, but that's the saying that they say, right? So but the idea being is we know that the end result is guaranteed that Hashem will come and reveal himself to the entire world. And that this struggle itself is going to end up bringing us closer and closer to the time period that we're waiting for. Let us understand the times in which we live, dear Benjamin, and let everyone further the progress of our age towards its goal, each according to the powers of the mind granted to him, and within his circle, be it large or small. Even if thousands will forsake the cause of life and light, if thousands will turn their back on the destiny and name of Judaism, whose way of life they abandoned long ago, the cause of truth is not concerned with the number of it, its adherents. Even if only one remains, one single Jew holding the book of the Torah in his hand, Yisrael's teachings in his heart and Yisrael's radiance in his spirit, that one Jew suffices and the cause of Israel will not be lost. Right? And we actually see that in, you know, very, very openly in, in the Torah portions that we're working through right now. In Lech Lecha, right, where Abraham goes, right? And in this week's parasha, where we see Abraham saying, if there were but only 10 righteous individuals in all of those five large cities, it would be sufficient to save that entire city. Why? What about the rest of the individuals? They deserve to die. They're worthy of the death penalty. So why is it that they're going to live? Why will they survive? Well, the answer is that if even two righteous people in one city, they can turn over the entire city. They can make a revolution, a moral and justice revolution. And therefore, what he's saying is if even one person from Israel still remains strong and we lose everyone else, unfortunately, that would still be sufficient to carry that banner forward. Okay, tomorrow night we'll finish letter 18. Bezrat Hashem.